The Drive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program where we put the world of motoring and transport under the microscope. I'm David Brown and I'm joined by our good friend Rob Fraser. G'day, Rob. David, welcome. And what are you going to cover in the program this week? Well, considering it's coming up to the ski season, I thought we'd spend a little bit of time talking about preparing your vehicle to travel to the snow. That's probably the main thing. Hmm. And a few other little bits and pieces as well. And we will do that going to the snow in a series because there's a number of features that are very important. They're not just some hard facts, but some interesting reflections as well. We're going to have some news stories, including Uber Air launches in Australia. Dean Oliver and Brian Smith take up the issue of designing transport infrastructure. Should it be just functional or have an element of visual appeal? We'll have two motoring minutes as well, the BMW Z4 and the Kia Picanto. And you can hear previous programs as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And we are now, of course, going to a longer program of nearly an hour. But enough of that. Let's get going. First, the news. Ride-sharing giant Uber has named Melbourne as one of the three locations around the world for a revolutionary new aerial taxi trial. The pioneering experiment will run concurrently with similar schemes in Dallas and Los Angeles, using the company's Uber Air Pilot to connect major points of each respective city. Uber plans to commence Uber plans to commence trial flights from 2020 with a fully-fledged commercial model operational from 2023. The fleet will comprise small electric aircraft with vertical takeoff and landing technology that use rooftops and existing helipads as stopping points. Uber's announcement was made following a deal struck with Melbourne Airport, Macquarie Capital and Telstra. Susan Anderson, Regional General Manager for Uber in Australia, New Zealand and North Asia, said that Australian governments have adopted a forward-looking approach to ride-sharing and future transport technology. Uber Air will have to navigate some hefty red tape before its plans can materialise. Already, the governing Civil Aviation Safety Authority, or CASA, has flagged potential sticking points, including certification for battery-powered aircraft in many airports, airspace management and specialised pilot training. Elsewhere, Uber's regular rideshare program is currently facing a class action lawsuit from Australian taxi drivers. Overdrive recently reported that Fiat Chrysler was considering a merger with French automaker Renault. Well, the discussion recently came to a sudden halt. After its second day of negotiations with Renault, FCA said that it would withdraw its merger offer that would have made a combined company the world's third largest automaker. Renault said that it would postpone its decision. Both parties hinted that the French government's interest in Renault and its larger alliance with Nissan and Mitsubishi was a major sticking point. German automotive supplier ZF has revealed an external airbag system and said that the experimental safety feature has the ability to shield passengers and protect them to a greater extent in a side impact crash. The system operates exactly like it sounds. External airbags deploy on the exterior of the car should the system determine that a crash is imminent. 
The company said the extra crumple zone that exterior airbags provide helps reduce passenger injury severity by up to 40%. The company didn't detail the particulars surrounding the system, but said unique algorithms, along with radar and cameras, help predict a crash. The airbags deploy in about 150 milliseconds, the same amount of time it takes for a human to blink. ZF didn't provide a timeline for when it may put its prototype system into production, but it will offer the technology to automakers. Volvo owners stuck on the side of the road with a broken down car will never need to worry about arranging a tow truck. Volvo recently announced that it will provide free towing for life for drivers in the United States. The program, fittingly called Tow for Life, extends outside of the bundled roadside assistance included with a Volvo new car warranty. Even after the car is out of warranty, owners can still call Volvo directly and the brand will arrange for a tow truck to take the car to the nearest Volvo dealership. There lies the catch. Owners won't be able to instruct Volvo where they'd like the car to be towed. Instead, the car must head to a dealer that is covered under the new program. Volvo called it a commitment to using genuine Volvo parts and ensuring cars are back on the road as quickly as possible. Lawmakers in New York City are going to great lengths to ensure pedestrians keep their heads out of their phones while crossing the street. State Senator John Louis recently introduced a bill seeking to ban pedestrians from using cell phones and other handheld electronic devices while crossing the road. If the bill passes and a pedestrian is caught texting and walking, they could face fines of between $25 to $250. According to CNN, the statewide ban would include texting, checking emails and browsing the internet. The bill, which is an updated version of a similar bill introduced in 2018, must be approved by the Transportation Committees in both the Assembly and the Senate before it can be introduced for a vote by lawmakers. Havao SUV, China's leading SUV brand, has unveiled its completed factory in Tula, Russia, and presented an F7 SUV to both President Xi and President Putin. The new plant ushers in a new era of Sino-Russian relations on the 70th anniversary of economic cooperation between both nations. As part of Havao's globalization strategy, the $500 million Tola factory will boost Russia's economic development, generating local profits and taxes, and creating 4,000 new jobs. And that has been the news. Most hot hatches are now a reasonably sized vehicle, but the new Kia Picanto GT is clearly in the micro segment. With a 1.0-litre three-cylinder turbo engine, low-profile tyres and tuned handling, it is a perky, enjoyable drive. With a five-speed manual, it feels a bit wheezy in first and second gears, but it is in its element, with third-gear touring on twisty roads and it pulls well up hills, even with three or four people on board. Seats are firm to hard, you hear the engine clearly, and it has a bit of road noise, but it is only $18,000 plus on-road costs. Overdrive, answering your questions across Australia.
What would you rate as the worst thing that could happen on a skiing holiday? Twisting or breaking your ankle? Getting an upset stomach? Or your car breaking down? Two of those scenarios will get you sympathy. One will get you derision for not preparing properly. I often think we use our cars throughout the year a bit like jogging around the block, short, fairly easy trips. But then, when we go on a holiday, it's a bit like taking your car on a marathon. It's doing a heavier task, particularly if you're going to the snow. Now, our Rob Fraser, among other things, runs the Oz Roma website, which is all about how and where to travel in this great country. Rob, what should I do to avoid catastrophe? First thing, David, I would say is probably not go skiing, considering your knees. <laughs> so that might get rid of one of those three. The second one is to make sure that your car is perfectly serviced before you head off. Yeah. If you liken it to the analogy you were talking about with heading out for a marathon, you're going for a marathon, but in possibly some of the worst conditions you would imagine going for a run in, and that's in the snow. Everything is going to be stressed to the limit in that cold conditions. You know all a lot about cars. Do you still get your car serviced by someone else? Oh, absolutely. Before I head off on a big trip, I take it into the, the guy that particularly looks after my four-wheel drive, and he goes over with a fine-tooth comb. Just the simple things like the suspension, the, the radiator, the, the oil, the tyres, all that type of stuff. Just a simple once-over to make sure that everything is in tip-top condition. But for the snow, there are some things you have to particularly take care of and you should do these before you even get anywhere near the snow. Prevention rather than cure. Absolutely. The worst thing you can be is sitting on the side of the road with your nose buried deep in a snowdrift wondering what went wrong. Antifreeze. In my radiator, how do I know if I need it or not? Well, most good coolants have antifreezer in there anyway. So it's, some, it's like a dual prevention. It stops the water from freezing and it stops it from overheating. It's that green colour tinge that it's in your water in the radiator. But check to make sure you have got antifreeze in there. One key point there is the fact that all that antifreeze and coolant, dispose of it properly if you're going to do it yourself, change it, recycle it appropriately and keep it away from animals because it can be lethal to animals and small children if they drink it or consume it. Properly is not down the drain. Properly is not down the drain. Not like our youth. No, no, properly is in a, in a bottle and recycled correctly. Particularly that if you've had a car that's using a bit of water and you're topping it up by the tap, you're diluting the antifreeze. If you have been topping it up over a while, then I would suggest flushing and refilling it before you go. The other thing about coolant, of course, is also your windscreen washers. Yes, you can get some antifreeze for the washers. The last thing you want to do is spray your windscreen and all of a sudden you've got ice all the way across it. Is it a different antifreeze? It is, absolutely. It's a, again, through one of your normal service station or car automotive outlets like Super Cheap Auto or something like that. The other key factor is it's your fuel that you get there. If you've got a diesel engine, you should absolutely fill your tank with Alpine fuel before you get above the snow line conditions. Diesel itself has what they call a clouding effect, and that basically it becomes gel. And so the Alpine diesel lowers the point at which that diesel will coagulate and become unusable. So it's typically petrol stations that are near the snow. Yeah, from about May onwards, they start stocking Alpine diesel. If you've got a dual fuel vehicle, such as a gas petrol one, switch it to petrol. Don't use gas. Yeah, why is that? Again, the freezing temperatures. We'll come to chains and that at a separate exercise because we need to do that. But you said good tyres. Most SUVs now, of course, have wonderful road tyres. 
that once you get into ice and snow, it's a different game altogether. If you are driving consistently in ice and snow, and overseas this is a major factor, people have what they call snow tyres, which has a completely different tread on it. It's like cleats on the bottom of your shoes. It bites into the ice and gives you more traction. As we say, prevention is clearly better than cure. Rob, we will cover other aspects of travelling in the snow, such as where, when and how to use chains on your wheels and the fine art of parking. It's not as simple as you think. David, thank you. And Rob's website is www.ozroamer.com.au. Overdrive, answering your questions across Australia. And it's time to talk a little bit more about some broader news stories. And Rob, we find that a Texas firm will build a Ferrari 458, an Italia, with a manual transmission, if you want, because it's all paddles now. And so they are providing things that Ferrari won't. Do you like driving manuals? Uh, To be honest, not really. I think I'm getting a bit old and a bit over it. My son said he drove a manual the other day and he went faster. He felt that it was a little bit of that boyhood vroom vroom. Because the interesting thing is that they're not necessarily, and in some cases they're certainly not, better at fuel consumption, whereas they used to be. Uh, and, and that is the case. I think also, too, I adopt the approach that says that the manufacturer's gear changes are probably quicker than mine would be anyway. Our good friend Edward Rowe used to say that actually many gear changes, even by motoring journalists, are inefficient in the sense that we bleeped the accelerator at the wrong time. I don't even mean in double shuffling. I mean just in letting the clutch out and doing the accelerator. And it's those little peaks that can... No, not significantly, but noticeably increase the fuel consumption. Uh, It still gives you that feeling of being back in mechanical link to your car, doesn't it? I think if you've got a sports car, and that, that goes right down from a hot hatch up to the Ferrari 458, you do feel a little bit more sporty using the manual gearbox. But then that sort of is short-lived by jumping into some peak hour traffic and just having to change up and down out of neutral into first. Yeah. I told the story of I drove an MX-5 and the first corner I got to just down the block, I wasn't going fast, but I snapped into second gear and I thought I had an endorphin rush. It uh, reminded me of things past, but then I grew tired of it. You're quite right. Do you remember the Lancia Stratos? I, I, I do from many years ago and... A similar story to the MX-5. I did actually have a try of driving one, but not very successfully. Lancia Stratos was a little rally car, V6 engine, very small. Actually, you didn't realise how small it was until you saw it in the flesh, a bit like a Lotus, a lease, uh, did you get at the moment. And so getting your um, muscular frame into one of those... Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm being as charitable as I possibly can, into a little car would be rather hard, but they were a pocket rocket. Oh, they were excellent. They were a lot of fun and they look good and we need to have something like that these days. Well, we have. We do. 
Yes, the Lamborghini Huracan Storato, which is, uh, in some ways, it, it we know the Huracan is that lovely new Lamborghini that's not too angular. You know how they became the real Batmobile look, where everything was real aggressive angles. This one is a, a low-slung sports car, but it's slightly smoother and lies. There's still some dominant features in the design, but it, it's a little smoother. But they've made an all-wheel-drive Super One that uh, looks like it could rally particularly well. The new design is actually really good. I always likened to the previous designs that someone who designed it was very angry <laughs> all the time. But, <laughs> but these new ones, it's, I mean, I like the look of it, and it's certainly not as extreme or obtuse as the previous ones. Although, when you look at it in painted with stripes and things like it's rattling, it looks okay. In the car showroom, it does look a little bit like a Marvel comic toy that it's a, a slick little body but sitting up on almost artificially large wheels, but it's still a beautiful little car. Rob, have you ever got frustrated with someone walking across a pedestrian crossing in front of you and they're on their mobile phone? David, never. You misjudge me totally. I'll take that as a yes. Yeah, no, it's, it's one of life's absolute frustrations where people walk across the road they've got no idea what's coming often they'll just step out in front of you with no no concept at all as a vehicle there or they'll just walk across a crossing after everyone's finished and it's the you know the red light is there for the people walking and they've still got their head buried deep into that smartphone lawmakers in new york city are trying to make that illegal that if you do have your phone on and you're crossing the road, it is dangerous and you could face a fine between American 25 to $250. I haven't got it through the legislation yet, but it could be the one. I was in Melbourne and this guy was walking across the street and, of course, he wasn't just not paying attention, he was going slow and he almost stopped to dial. And needless to say, there was a degree of frustration with it. Melbourne just had a blitz on people jaywalking at the same time in the last week. Oh, OK. They fined, I think, over 200 people in two days. I also was in Melbourne, but I was slow. As you know, I had trouble with my knee and I had to walk with a set of crutches. I was the last person. I felt very guilty, which is probably a reflection of my character, but I was struggling away, but at least people could see that I was genuine in my attempt. The other thing I hated about Melbourne, being on crutches, was tram lines. I, I think that just goes whether you're on crutches, walking or driving, tram lines are just a pain. Mm. Or a motorbike. Going back to the American scenario, are they going to find people for being on the phone or using the phone, like reading something? Ah, no, anything. It's not just talking on it. I think it's texting or any of those things is the proposed legislation. Ah, okay. You would support that? Look, I think so. I, I saw a very funny video once where it was a, coming from a corner camera where there was bear walking up one side of the footpath and a man on his phone on the other side of the footpath, and they actually met at the corner. <laughs> Both scared the bejesus out of each other and ran away. <laughs> Give way to the bear on your right. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. That is quickly on our website or anyauto.com.au. We have a couple of videos, including my latest expose in a Mustang, where I went to a charity motor show. 
which is on once a month, and compared my latest Mustang with Scott, whom uh, we covered on the program a little while ago, uh, and his 1965 coupe. Well, now we've got some pictures of some videos to go with it. Rob, uh, we'll also catch up uh, in regard to a new camping facility, which I quite like. Sounds good. You're listening to Overdrive. And we're back with uh, Rob. Now, Rob, I've got to say in camping, I err on the side of glamping rather than camping. There's a new device out from Rivian that I think helps. Can you describe it for us? Well, what they've done is they've they've taken the concept of a mobile kitchen. A lot of camper trailers sort of have a slide-out kitchen. And they've actually built this into the body of the vehicle, which is an excellent idea. This is a utility and a, a five-seater? It's a, well, four or five-seater. It is a, a, what we would call a dual-cab ute, although it's a light truck over in the States. So I think it's more like the Ram-sized vehicles here. But it has a slide-out kitchen that has you know, everything that you'd want on it attached to the vehicle already. Excellent idea. Love it. And it appears just behind the cabin but in front of the rear wheels and comes out... I hate the concept of sitting on a folding chair trying to balance a plate with my cup possibly down on the ground where I'm going to kick it over in a camping situation. So this adds some permanency, some stability to that situation? Yeah, look, it's more about preparation rather than eating at. Okay. But you can stand there next to it. I think we need to go do a bit more camping, David. We need to get you out a little bit more, I think. Now, you used to uh, do a lot of uh, trailers and that in camping. They can have some pretty good equipment on them. One of the the comments that was made to me quite often uh, by the women that were looking at the the trailers, and I'm not being sexist or misogynist, Hmm. was that when I pulled out the... We had a slide-out stainless steel kitchen, and a lot of them made the comment, oh, that's better than the one we got at home. We'll buy one of these, thanks. (laughs) Because it actually... It had hot and cold running water, a three-burner stove drawers a cutlery drawer and and it was all stainless steel and when you said slide out that's like folding down the rear panel and and being able to pull it out that way is that how it worked well no it actually came out over the front of the drawbar over the a-frame oh so same sort of concept to what the vehicle is it it, it slid out from a a section within the trailer itself a sealed section Hmm. and was self-supporting so you had this kitchen that was probably about 1.2 meters long um, self-supporting, and had everything on there that you could possibly want. The benefit is that you didn't have to unpack individual stoves and all that type of stuff and individual cookers. It was all there, and when you finished, you just slid it back in again, neat and tidy. They loved it. As I say, I think that amount of order helps make me appreciate the great outdoors far more, having spilt far too many things on my lap as I try to cut them up or whatever. <laughs> uh... You may remember last week, Rob, we talked about uh, Ian Callum, the Jaguar designer, who, and now I think, I I don't know that I'll take credit for this, but he has now just been awarded the commander of the Order of the British Empire. Isn't it nice to know that you and I are campaigning for the right things and seeing the results? Absolutely. I mean, that's well-deserved. He's had a very long and distinguished history of giving service Hmm. 
to the British automotive industry. And, of course, it's uh, renowned, the Jaguar, renowned as the British car industry, even though it's now owned by Indian influencers. He also worked for Ford before that, the Ford Escort Cosworth. I didn't realise he designed that. And you mentioned, of course, his other great works, the Aston Martin. I looked at the tail of the DB9. Oh, that was lovely, wasn't it? He just had a flair for just getting it right, didn't he? Hmm. Yeah, it's. Uh, I thought the front wasn't as elegant as... It was a bit historic rather than elegant, but that's another story. After this, I'm, in a little while, I'd like to talk about uh, hybrids that Alan raised last week. We'll catch up with that. This is Overdrive across Australia. Hey, Rob, you remember last week, uh, Alan said he'd been out in a FEV, P-H-E-V, plug-in hybrid electric vehicle, from Range Rover, very elegant car. And the point has come out this week is some research from Emissions Analytics, a UK company that measures the real pollution levels, not just in the laboratory, among other things. Now, they've come out and said that hybrids are 14 times better than battery electric vehicles at reducing real-world carbon dioxide emissions. Do you think that we are perhaps rushing towards electric vehicles when we might get better value from these partway technologies? Oh, look, I, I think so. I mean, I've never made any secret about the fact that I think the electronic, the electronic technology is excellent, but it's almost a case of they're designing it for design's sake. There could quite possibly be a number of other alternatives, as you said, like that are midway between, hmm. that may provide better solutions. You can bet your life that research wasn't sponsored by the automotive manufacturers. I think the case of reducing significantly the pollution in a lot of cars may well be a, a, a technology, an option we should still push for, even though we may have electric vehicles which reduce local pollution in a few cars and uh, but i do think it is local pollution as i've said on many occasions that is going to push it not just the idea of global warming that people will be affected at the local level you can't drive your car into the cbd for example unless it is a an electric vehicle or a zero polluting vehicle but the thing about the plug-in hybrid is means that you can then use it as an electric vehicle for about 50 k's rather than a normal hybrid, which really is just helping your petrol engine along a bit, so you're using your petrol engine 95% of the time. It's a little bit further along the continuum, but with a lot more practicality. You mentioned the zero-emission vehicles. Mm. What about hydrogen vehicles? Well, they are, of course, an electric vehicle, but they do it with uh, the conversion of hydrogen where it merges in a molecular sense with oxygen, and so the output is only water. I think that has great potential. There are some limitations to it, but it can charge up quickly. Australia can make hydrogen through uh, renewable resources. It's, It's a great possibility. Our chief scientist is a great campaigner for this particular approach. And it's all to do with convenience. You know, I looked at something the other day that really reminded me why I still struggle a bit with electric vehicles. How do you plug in your kettle to warm it, to to heat the water? Now, 
it's not the old plug-in that you had to be careful of so it didn't get water on it or so on. It's a base that you just put your kettle on. That's what we need for electric vehicles at home in your garage. And there's some talk about doing it like charging your phone by putting it on a pad without having, forgive this as a first world problem, but without having to plug the thing in. The annoyance of having a cable, you just have a base to do it. That's the sort of thing that's going to make electric vehicles more palatable. But also more costly. And what you're doing there is continually talking about a a complete change in driver habits. Hmm. I had a Jaguar electric, the I-Pace, a couple of weeks ago. Hmm. The difficulty I had was that because my driveway is exceptionally steep, I couldn't actually get the vehicle up into the garage because of the low approach angle to charge the vehicle. Hmm. So, I mean, just little things like that, you might actually require a change in what you're doing in terms of building houses that the garages will now have a charging pad on the ground. Great idea, but again, you're, you're looking at a complete change in habits as opposed to something that's you know, like hybrids that are keeping the same habits but making the reduction smaller but across a greater number of people because the adoption will be greater. This may surprise you, but we have a garage, but you know it's full of other stuff. <laughs> I didn't want to say that. I used the excuse in mind, so. Well, you have the problem then that yours is not behind a fence outside the garage. That's true. And, you know, my son lives in a place that doesn't have a garage, so you're not going to run a cable out. There's all these things. I think we will get better, but we have to address them. Rob, it's been lovely to talk to you. Uh, thank you very much for all your input. David, thank you. That's Rob Fraser. And uh, coming up, we'll have a final segment where we talk with Dean and Brian about aesthetic appeal of transport infrastructure. Overdrive, answering your questions across Australia. Last week we had an interview about a 1962 roadside structure for traffic lights and signposts that became known affectionately as the Meccano set. They had to replace it, but under heavy community pressure, they put back a replica of the old, inelegant structure. Should infrastructure be just functional or aesthetically pleasing? Who better to talk about that than our resident artist, Dean Oliver, and our good friend, Brian Smith. Gentlemen, thank you for your time. Hello, David. It's good to be with you. And hello, Brian. G'day, David. G'day, Dean. This was, in fact, a little bit of brutalist design. Dean, should it have heritage? The the look of it, should it be heritage? Or should we strive for something more aesthetically pleasing? Well, David, look, it's a small-scale local urban traffic control structure. But look, we need beauty and design more now than probably ever in, in human history. And yeah, look, uh, it, needs to be re- it needed to be redesigned for, for functional reasons, but it also needed to look good. And uh, isn't it wonderful that local people thought 
that it was worth retaining. It's just wonderful. You've got to admit, I think, Dean, you mentioned it doesn't look like Meccano. I had a Meccano set. I'm a child of the 60s, and yeah, I had a Meccano set. They were, they were wonderful things, little metal strips with angles and holes, and there were plates that were joined together by little tiny nuts and bolts, and they were coloured green and red. And, uh, and you, could do, you could build all sorts of things. You need the spanner and, and, uh, and that to put it all together. And it, it sort of fostered, I guess, basic engineering. And maybe it was a forerunner to Lego. But it's over 100 years old. It, it was first introduced in about the 1890s. So it's got, a, it's got an enormously long history. Hornby, I think, was the guy, wasn't he, Brian? That did Meccano. I Look, I'm not sure, David. You've, you have the advantage of me there. But I, I would like to st- talk briefly about the Meccano set at Lansdowne. So I, uh, in, in terms of local residents sort of appreciating its beauty, I think says more about the kind of paucity of, of attractive design anywhere else out there that people would think this ugly monstrosity was worth keeping. So, so for those who may not have seen it, it's, um, it's a very big intersection, very, very wide. And so the government, when they needed to put this thing to have signage there and traffic signals and directional signs, they decided to do this massive sort of rectangular frame and hang everything off it rather than the kind of cantilevered signs and, and uh, traffic signal posts that we have these days. So, look, you're right, it doesn't look like Meccano. It's just a very ugly and functional piece of equipment. And, and I think people wanting it replaced to look the same when it wore out, I think is more about people's discomfort with change. I think uh, what's in your life if you decide that this is an appealing thing that, that you, want to, uh, you want to retain? And I worry about putting too much attempted art into something. You might end up with something that's like a, a deeply regretted tattoo that might have made sense when you had it done when you were 18 or 20. But now that you're well, 50, look, Brian, you're going, no, look, it. No. Let's go, no, no, Brian, let's, go, let's go back to the 15 and 1600s when Leonardo da Vinci, Leonardo da Vinci devised the most beautiful looking invasion structures, catapults and uh, <laughs> siege engines that would destroy castles. And, uh, and, but though, uh, he was an engineer, but he, he drew the most beautiful and designed the most beautiful structures. And... Um, his early flying machines, they, they were mechanical devices in his imagination, but yet they, they were beautiful. He was an artist, but he was also an engineer. Why can't we have that today? Industrial design. I once interviewed the guy who started Cambrook, who made elegant, or oh no, functional, yet still good-looking kettles and things. And my question was to him, if you designed a car, what would you do? And he said, I'd make it easy to clean. <laughs> based on what i see on the television david the other important thing is to be able to fold it up and push it under a bed i think <laughs> but back to dean's point the problem is that we had we don't have a da vinci we have the person who designed sangyong right so so there's always a massive risk of, of getting the, oh, yeah. the wrong artist, the wrong designer. My, argue, my argument's just been shot down. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I might not know good art, but I know what I like. I know what I like. Let's, we'll, we'll have let history be the judge of us there, I, I fear. But, gentlemen, we do do things like painting control boxes for signals. 
it's become quite a thing. Yes, David, we've got some wonderful traffic control signal boxes around here in our municipality, one of which has got an old Valiant painted on it, which is really lovely. <laughs> and the other one's got a picture of the view behind the signal box, so that when you look at the signal box, you can actually see the view behind it, which is a service station, but, you know, that's definitely <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but it's a case of... It's design, it's beauty, it's in the high of the beholder. And uh, we need, look, our lives are so industrial these days. If we are stuck in the traffic at the Meccano set, waiting for a long time while Sydney's traffic just uh, jams us up around it, we should at least have something aesthetic to stop us from developing road rage uh, David, while we uh, look at it. Dean, you're an artist and you work in the genre of urban art. Can we see, do you think we could see a Meccano daub from you in future, in oils perhaps? Dean, you've painted the Harbour Bridge. I don't mean like Paul Hogan, I mean like on canvas. Indeed. In fact, we have one hanging in our house. So do I. I have, I have a Dean <laughs> Oliver Harbour Bridge in my house. It's incredibly beautiful because it, it juxtaposes the, the curve against the, the skyline. It's, it's wonderful. I want to see a it's Dean a Oliver of the Mechanical But Dean, you also have had a painting in the Sydney Museum. And was I think that was an urban landscape, wasn't it? Still there, yes, in the Museum of Sydney. It's a picture of the Sydney Harbour Bridge in the distance. It's a lovely structure. It's beautiful. I love it, yeah. A lot of artists don't like it because it's so familiar and it's always there. It's been painted and drawn so many times. But it's been painted and drawn pretty badly. It, it's a simple shape, but it's fiendishly difficult to draw and paint. Well, you've drawn it from a side view, not a directly the side view, like a three-quarter view. So getting that arch right is particularly hard, isn't it? It's a very difficult shape because it's symmetrical, but yet it, it changes its shape, the curve. The curve of the bottom of the arch is slightly different as it, as it, as it moves across. And uh, it's really difficult, but it's lovely. And... Uh, uh, I love it to death. It's it's wonderful. As you were talking, gentlemen, I immediately thought of the introduction to The Sopranos. <laughs> Brilliant television series, picked as by some as the best written television series ever. But it has that horrible, sort of dirty, grimy sort of drive through the city to start with. And it's got all the elements to it that are structural but have allowed to be just put up and left and and if it's a bit tatty then it doesn't matter if you have something of elegance might not you have a desire to keep it well perhaps not elegance but of difference is, is there a soprano metaphor here yes i think you're right on it david i think it's it's a gritty symbol of hard scrabble feisty western sydney and i think that's maybe yeah. more what people are appreciating I mean, yeah. There's a wonderful contrast back at the Meccano set, and the Meccano set is, is 1960s brutalist, but less than a kilometre away, down the hill to the west, is the most beautiful colonial sandstone structure of the Lansdowne Bridge, which was built in the 18, what, 40s or 50s, and uh, part of Sydney's wonderful Georgian early history architecture. And the two of them, so close together, are wonderful contrasts and comparisons. 
There was once a road test written of a falcon in about the late 60s, I think, by a motoring journalist who perhaps wasn't known as the greatest driver, but nonetheless one who wrote many words. The road test drove from Melbourne to that bridge. And the reason it stopped at that bridge is that's when he hit it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure the car came off second best, (laughs) yeah. The other point is that it was a landmark. You knew when you were going on holidays and you got to the Meccano set in the southwest of Sydney, you were on your way. You knew where you were and it was symbolic to you. There are a number of other sites, as our colleague talked about in the interview of last week, that it becomes something of significance that you remember as a kid and more now with their heads buried in screens, but there was something to it. Are there? Is that a good point? And are there other examples of that in your experience around the city? Exactly that. In fact, just down the road from the Meccano set is the uh, the replica Sydney Harbour Bridge at the Peter Warren Peter Warren's car yard. Do you remember that? <laughs> Source of much confusion for many children, I suspect. But for me, actually, going across the Hawkesbury River Bridge, the old one was uh, a big childhood sense of of leaving one part of the city to cross the Hawkesbury River. Hmm. I guess, gentlemen, what you're saying is we run the risk of having something like 70s flares in pants. We thought they were good at the time, but perhaps in (laughs) retrospect, it was a mistake. Where do the big things fit into this then? Ah. The big potato the big prawn. Their function is really that, isn't it? It's a, oh, we're at Goulburn. I can see a gigantic sheep. The merino. Yes, the big merino yeah. sheep. So uh, do they perform a similar function? Are they art, do we think? I think not. <laughs> I'd like to say, apart from the Leyland Brothers world, which was the giant sort of replica of... Uluru. Uluru. Yeah. <laughs> It, it was a Uluru via Bulla dealer, as I recall. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, all right. All right, gentlemen. Thank you for your time. Greatly appreciated. And the depth, and well, the, well, perhaps not depth, but width of the discussion has been wonderful. My pleasure, David. And that's Dean Oliver and Brian Smith talking there about structures, art, appreciation, and travel. Overdrive. If you have a question, suggestion or comment, send an email to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Winter isn't the best time for driving a convertible, but Rob Fraser didn't let that stop him from taking the BMW Z4 for a top-down drive on a 10-degree night. The latest BMW Z4 went on sale in mid-April. It's an all-new design by Australian designer Calvin Luck, and while it continues the Z4 heritage, it also represents a fresh approach. 
The Z4 is designed purely for hedonistic pleasure. It's all about the look, feel and driving experience. Designed as a two-seat vehicle, it's surprisingly comfortable inside even for taller drivers and the boot capacity isn't affected by the top being down. Driving with the top down in a convertible is one of life's great experiences. If you're never going to drive with the top down, don't buy this car because there are better coupes. However, there aren't many better convertibles for the price of around $85,000 plus the usual costs. I love my time in the Z4. It's definitely a second car, but a damn good one. Check out the full BMW Z4 review, carreviewcentral.com.au. Before you buy your next new car, check out carreviewcentral.com.au. At carreviewcentral.com.au, you'll find easy-to-read, easy-to-understand, unbiased new car reviews. We want to help you get exactly the right car for you. carreviewcentral.com.au. Ready for you now and whenever a new car is on your agenda. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to David Campbell, Rob Fraser, Brian Smith and Paul Just for doing the hard yards in supporting this program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au and previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.